So Paul introduces the letter, he greets them in kind of a classic way, but then next he gives thanks for them. And this is going to be the section that we're going to look at uh, this morning. And it's interesting because in this paragraph, I can't tell you, like there's, oh yeah, one more thing with regard to what Paul is going to get done in this uh, overall introduction. It's more like when we read this paragraph, it's like, oh yeah, just, just five more things, at least five more things. So that's the title of the sermon, just five more things. I want to read from the beginning, verse one through nine, we're going to cover verses four through nine, but this is God's word. It says, Paul called to be or called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then this is our text this morning. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him and all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would lead us through this section of your word and this thanksgiving that Paul gives for the church there. Help us to see how remarkable this is. And how much everything changes in how we see each other when we look through the lens of Christ. Instead of the lens of criticism, when we look through the lens of grace, instead of the lens of condemning, we pray that you would help us to see and be encouraged ourselves and to see by Paul's example a way, a way to interact with each other that is grace-filled. Christ-filled. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are going to take the rest of our time to unpack these five more things that at least I see in here. I think we find out two more things about Paul the Apostle, and then we find out three more things about the Corinthians themselves, and then we will connect all of this to ourselves at the end. But, but let's start with two more things that we learn about Paul the Apostle. And the first, in this paragraph, we find out that Paul is passionate about Jesus Christ the King. Paul is passionate about Jesus. Jesus Christ, the King of the world. He's passionate about the good news of all that Jesus has done to transform our lives through the gospel. Paul is passionate about the gospel. And once again, it's important to, to see that the opening of this letter sets the tone for the entire letter, the greeting and the thanksgiving that Paul offers. It gives us a chance to see what's central in the heart and mind of Paul. If last week we argued that what's wrong with the Corinthian church and all the things that need to be addressed and corrected are the result of Jesus being displaced from the center of their lives and their church, then Paul from the outset shows us what it's like when Jesus remains at the center of your life 
and at your church. And there's no doubt that, that Paul is passionate about Christ from the very outset. Let me show you a picture of the text. This is something that you could do. You can even do this in your, your Bible if you have one right now. I want you to look at how many times Paul references in just the verses that we just read, references Jesus Christ. Here's the first one. That's one. Number two, number three, number four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ our Lord, in him, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. What is Paul opening this letter with? Jesus Christ, and not just Jesus Christ, but five of those are modified by the idea of the lordship of Jesus Christ. The fact that, that Jesus Christ commands as our Lord, our love and our worship and our obedience Look, you always know what people are passionate about if you listen to what they talk about, right? And Paul was passionate about Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ and how that had changed him and changed them and is changing the world. That's the first thing. Paul is, is certainly passionate. But second, Paul is a grateful leader. It's the second thing we learn about Paul. He is a leader who celebrates grace in the lives of this church. He celebrates proof of grace in their evidences of grace in a church, by the way, that seems way more messy than commendable. It's actually quite remarkable that, that the Apostle Paul starts this way because he is going to spend the rest of the time addressing serious issues in this church. And yet, look where he begins in verse four again. I give thanks. When he thinks about them, he's sitting down to write to them to address these things. And he will not go forward until he has a chance to tell them, I give thanks to my God always for you. Why? Because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him and all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, this is powerful. This is amazing because Paul chooses to do three things. First, he chooses to celebrate that God is at work in them. Look, God is at work in you. He's excited to report. He, give, he gives thanks to God always for this. He celebrates grace, evidences of grace, objective proof. That's what evidence is. Evidence is objective proof that the grace of God is active in you. Look, before they are wrong, there is something very right, and that is the grace of God that has come to them. Secondly, he gives thanks specifically, not just generically. He encourages them that they have been made rich in Christ. You have been enriched. 
Indeed, Christ became poor so that we may may become profoundly and eternally rich in Christ Jesus. You have been enriched and then specifically in all speech and all knowledge, which is amazing because remember we're talking about Greece, talking about ancient Greece in the first century that, that loved and celebrated and worshiped these two things, oratory, speech, and then wisdom. Paul's saying, look, in Christ Jesus, you have been enriched in all speech, in all knowledge. Now, now what they're doing with those two things are sketchy, namely in how they're attaching to oratory and the skill of public speaking and even the, the speech in tongues that'll be addressed later on in the letter and how they're defining knowledge in a worldly way as opposed to the knowledge of, of God and, and the wisdom of the cross that he's going to speak of in just a moment. But he says that they were enriched and also the testimony about Christ was con- confirmed in them, meaning that the reality of the power of the gospel to transform lives was on display in their lives and in their church. And he says they were not lacking in any grace gift, which is what the word here is. In the Greek, maybe you've, you've heard the, the word charismata. The charismatic movement comes from this word that is the giving of gifts from God. But he says that you are not lacking any gift that's been given by God to his church through the Holy Spirit. He's saying in the present, you are not lacking anything. There is nothing that they are missing out on. There is no group that has something that they don't. There is no need to strive for something from God, the giver of gifts who apportions to each as he wills. There's no second-class citizen. You are all not lacking. It's in the plural. None of you are lacking anything from exactly what God, by his pure grace, has given to you. And then third, Paul takes the the very topics that he will correct and he sees and addresses and gives thanks for and celebrates the fact that God is at work first. Before we get to the misuse of these things, let's celebrate the presence of these things in the first place. This is remarkable. Who would do this? Wouldn't we in our own natural wisdom with with all manner of things going wrong, yeah, do a a greeting, grace and peace to you, and then lick the pencil and here we go. It's on. What in the world are you guys thinking? That's not at all what he says. He chooses something first. First. And he chooses to see God at work in them first. He chooses to see grace in them. Which is all that we we all deeply need. And I think want, if we're honest. Because the average Christian or the average believer in your experience and in mine so often, we are more often experientially aware of our failings. Correct me if I'm wrong. We are more aware 
of our shortcomings and what is not and what is missing in ourselves and in others. We are more aware of what's wrong about us. That's what, that's what creeps to the, to the forefront of our hearts and minds. How quickly some, some grace that happens in our lives, that's demonstrated in our lives, how quickly we roll over that into the discouragement and the despair of all that's wrong with us, all that's lacking in us. Instead of being more aware of and being good at identifying and seeing where God is at work first. That's what Paul is doing here. And yet, is that what we do? Think about your life, which would be easier for you to talk about for 10 minutes. I'm gonna ask you a question and you can riff on this for, for 10 minutes or as long as you want. If I asked you, where are you falling short? in your Christian walk? Where do you see coldness toward God? Where do, you, where do you see in your life you need to grow? Wouldn't you be able to, to totally answer that? If, if you trusted, if I was asking that, or you trusted the person that was asking that, wouldn't you be like, oh, oh gosh, where do you want me to start, right? How much time do you have? I think we're really good at identifying and communicating those things. And it's not that, that that's not good to be aware of in your life, but would you struggle if I asked you or if someone you trusted asked you, where do you see God at work in your life right now? Where do you see specifically, where do you see the power of Jesus at work in your life, even in the smallest way? Where in your life would you say that? That would not be in my life if it weren't for the power of Jesus Christ. See, the question is, are, are we anywhere close to being good at that? Not only in our own hearts and, and evaluating our own lives, but are we, are we great at that with regard to one another? I think if you ask, if I ask, which one are you better at? I'll ask you husbands with regard to your wife. Do you see evidences of God's grace abounding in her? Yeah, maybe issues and things. We're all human. We're all sinners. We're all, all still growing and, and becoming more like Christ from one degree of glory to the next. But not only is that a, a club in your bag, but you would say that, that that actually comes first. That that's what you're preoccupied with. Or wives, when you think about your husband, if he is a believer, has experienced the grace of God, even in the smallest ways, do you, do you first latch on to, I see Christ in you in these ways? What about with your children? What do you see first? What are you better at? What about with your friends? What about in your community group? Look, Christians have a deep need for encouragement, don't we? Like we're good at discouragement. That's kind of the default setting. 
But who is it that's going to enter into your world and use their voice to speak life and encouragement by drawing attention to where God Almighty is at work in your life? Don't we want that? Don't we need that? Won't that, won't that change the narrative some for our bleak and weary days sometimes? Look, this is what Paul is doing. He knows something. If you had a pile of logs that you wanted to turn into a bonfire and you wanted it to be a roaring fire affecting every piece, every piece of wood, every part of that pile of logs, Paul knows that it would be really kind of stupid and crazy to blow on the part of the log that's cold and unlit. Why would you do that? Instead of finding the smallest spark of actual fire and blowing on that. Because even the smallest spark, if identified and encouraged, has the power to light the whole thing. This is what this is what he's doing. This is the kind of leader that Paul was, filled with affection and faith first for people who had genuinely received the grace of God. He shares the heart of God for God's people. Look at what Christopher Love says, that it's true. He said God exactly takes notice of tenderly cherishes and graciously rewards the least beginnings and the smallest measures of grace in the hearts of his people. That's fantastic, isn't it? And if you say, well, I do want to be more like that. I want to be better at encouraging people around me and identifying and pointing out places where God is at work but where should I even begin? Maybe you'd say, I'm just not, not good at that. Where would I even start? Well, we can follow Paul's pattern when he thinks about them. His pattern in this paragraph is to, is to point out the grace of God that they had experienced in their past and the grace of God in their present and the grace of God in their future, which then takes us to the three things that we learn about the Corinthians. So if Paul is passionate about Jesus Christ. He places Christ at the very center of, of the working of this entire paragraph and greeting. And if Paul is a grateful, thankful leader who identifies grace in the people of God, then what we learn first about the Corinthians also is that they have experienced and received the grace of Christ in the past. Right? This is the, the third thing about them. Look in verse 4. Paul says, I... Give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus. He's talking about the grace of God that came to them in the past, the definitive act of God's unmerited favor on their lives when because of nothing that they ever did to earn or deserve salvation, God called them to himself. The verb here, was given, is a past tense verb. This grace was given. And notice that the grace was given to you and me and them in Christ Jesus. 
He says, you, I give thanks, God, always for you because of the grace that was given to you in Christ Jesus, meaning that God's grace towards us exists only in his son to whom we are united. That means that there is no saving grace of God for anyone to be found outside of Jesus, our savior and our substitute. And that grace that was given existed in the heart of God in all of eternity past. And because it became irresistible to us in the moment that God issued a summons to our heart to come to him, in that moment, the grace of God that saved us for eternity came to us. Look, this is how Ephesians 1 describes much of this. Says this in verse 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, again, look, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the, in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Do you see the grace that had come to them? The hour they first believed. To be a Christian is to be someone who is loved by God from all eternity and chosen by God and called by name in space and time called by name from Almighty God and awakened to respond to Jesus. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit of God forever united you to Jesus Christ and him to you. And in that moment, you became rich in Christ. You received all that is Christ's became yours through your union with Christ forever. You received adoption into the very family and household of God where you have become a co-heir with Jesus Christ of all things. You received the forgiveness of your sins, past, present, and future, because Jesus Christ paid it all on the cross. You received reconciliation, a relationship back to the God who made you. You received redemption. You're no longer a slave to sin. You've been set free by the redemption price that was the very blood of Jesus Christ for you. All of this was for you because of God's love for you. And all of this happened to you in space and time the moment you were saved. That is the grace of God that's been given to you because in that moment, it wasn't you who were searching for God. It wasn't you who was necessarily effectively calling out to God. It was him finding you and him calling you and him saving you and rescuing you. Not because of anything you did to earn this or deserve it. It's only through faith that we are saved, which is why Christianity is so different from every other religion. 
We don't earn our way to God. We don't work our way to God. We were running from God, and God spoke our name, and we responded. Look, Paul, Paul knows this about them. This means according to the Bible and according to Paul's example, if you pack up, scrub back two minutes, it's like, do you want to be this way? The kind of person that, that quickly identifies what's good? And this has nothing to do, by the way, with your personality. This has nothing to do with your Enneagram number. This has everything to do with Christ transforming your lives put, to put his gospel lenses over your eyes. So that what you see is all that we've been talking about in every single Christian's life. What Christian do you know that all that I just read and talked about isn't true about? That means there's never a time that you don't have something to encourage every believer you come across. There's never a time. Just go to the grace of God that they've received in the past. Look at this, Romans 8. Verse 30, and those he predestined, he also called, past tense, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. What Christian do you know that this is not true of? Then therefore, let us encourage one another away. Because this is powerful. The grace of Christ in the past, and then the grace of Christ in the present. He transitions to their experience of grace in the present. Look at verse 7. He says, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not lacking. It's a phrase that Paul uses in the present tense. You just have to follow the tenses of his verb throughout this. This one's in the present tense. We've already talked about this some. But here we see at least two things about them in the present. First, they are currently, right now, they are not lacking from God, who sovereignly and generously gives gifts, grace gifts, for our everyday lives. They are lacking nothing. And these gifts, by the way, according to the the grace of God through the power of his Holy Spirit to us, these gifts include sustaining grace, The grace that just sustains us through each day, it includes preserving grace, grace that helps us to hold on in faith, it includes empowering grace, grace that helps us to follow Christ with the power that he gives. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And it includes the grace of spiritual gifts that help us accomplish the mission of God toward the world and one another. In the, present, in the present, right now, they are described as having everything they need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. All because of the grace of God that is powerfully active toward them. So there's no reason to think that God is withholding anything from them or anything from us. There's no reason to think that we need to work something up or try to to talk a reluctant God into releasing something for us. Look, the charismatic confusion and the wrong thinking and the wrong practice regarding gifts and the definition that are, are to come, that is, it's gonna be cleared up later. But this is who they are. Because of the grace of God, for which Paul gives quick thanks for. 
is that they are not lacking in any gift. And also, you notice they are described as those who are waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they have hope. They've been given hope, hope that this life is not all that there is, hope that that Christ is going to return one day, hope that we will be vindicated at the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we love but we have not seen. But we believe and, and worship only by faith and not by sight. One day, the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to happen. And we'll see him with our eyes. And of all the things that explode in our hearts in that mo- moment, one of them will be, we were right to follow Jesus and trust in him and the salvation that he gave us. Look, hope is a gift, and true believers who share this hope experience the active grace of God. Every believer genuinely longing for and patiently waiting for Jesus experiences the active presence and power of God in their lives until he comes. And again, these things are true about every Christian that you know. Their life is saturated with the sustaining grace of God, the preserving grace of God, the empowering grace of God, the spiritual gifts that God has given. He promises everyone to each is given a gift. Grace abounds. Romans 8, verse 31 to 32. What what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Brothers and sisters, you are not lacking. And what Christian do you know that Romans 8, 31 and 32 isn't true about? So again, it it really shouldn't be that hard for us to find and celebrate present grace in the life of every true believer around us, just like Paul did. The third thing we see is is grace, the grace of Christ in the future. And this also is powerful and, and rounds out their story and who they are. The third thing we find out about these Corinthians, he says in verse seven, you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you to the end? Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ, who will sustain you? Will sustain you. That's future tense. We've seen grace past, grace present, and now grace future. And this is what Paul is celebrating. This is what he knows about them. He doesn't even have to touch a problem yet. And he can barely contain himself. And the future grace that can be expected by every true believer in Jesus includes the preservation of our souls by the power of God based on the the rock-solid character and faithfulness of God who will never not bring to completion the good work that he began. 
how is God going to promise to save you and then let you go? How is God going to promise those he called and justified he will also glorify? And allow for a scenario where that's not going to be true about you. Because in your feebleness and, and weakness, you had it backwards. You thought you were holding on to God when all along it was him holding on to you. But God is faithful. He finishes what he starts, brothers and sisters. That is what Paul is saying. If God calls you, he will fulfill every promise concerning you to bring you to the end, blameless and guiltless on the great day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how could he not preserve us by his grace? Look what Jesus says in John 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is what the Westminster Confession says. They whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called, and sanctified by his spirit, they can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. It depends upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, who is praying for us now. It depends on the abiding of the Spirit, of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace from which all arises. Also, the certainty and infallibility thereof. It's just saying, look, <laughs> it's kind of a nerdy theological way of saying, God's got you. God's got you. Ephesians 1 verse 13 later on says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed, past tense, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. This means that if you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit truly, then that spirit in you is the guarantee of your finishing and inheriting eternal life in Christ Jesus. Or else that's a lie. And I shake to even hint at that because this is not a lie. This is God's word. Now, of course, the, the most tragic presumption is to think or act like you have been sealed with the Spirit, but you deceive yourself and others. You are not truly a Christian. You say, Lord, Lord, like Jesus said, but to your horror and shock, find on that day him saying, I never knew you. The, the warnings in Scripture exist in the New Testament to press us on to finish the race to persevere even as God preserves us, to not slow down. 
But this is what Anthony Hokema says. He says, in light of the New Testament teaching, to be sealed with the Spirit means to be eternally secure. Just as no one can ever snatch us out of the hand of Christ or out of the hand of the Father, so no one can ever break the seal of the Spirit. So in the end, this is what Wayne Grudem says, and he captures, I think he captures both well. He says, the perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. Look, this is what what Paul is, is saying to them. That he gives thanks for the grace of God that has come in the past and all that is theirs because of Christ, the grace of God that is active and saturating their lives in the present and the grace of God that is guaranteed for their future even until the end. He says, Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end. Do you believe those words? This is freedom for anyone who thinks in their own strength, you have to make it for the next 50 years somehow. That's not how this works. We've been united to Christ who by the power of his Holy Spirit will extend his work in our lives every day until the end. That is what it says. Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, that great day of the Lord. And then he says, God is faithful by whom you were called. You see, he goes all the way back to the past. Like all that he said is because of that moment that God called your name and saved you. Look, this is powerful. This is amazing. This is the grace of God from eternity past to eternity future that came to you and me, not because of anything we did to deserve this or earn this. He's gonna say, isn't he, pretty soon? Think of, think of who you were when you were called. Many that were wise, impressive. No, he chose the weak things of the world. He chose the us of the world. He's also going to say, and if this is true about every believer you know, from eternity past to eternity future, then who's boasting? If Jesus Christ, according to the will of the Father from eternity past, took on human flesh and came and saved you by his death and resurrection on the cross... And then the spirit of God in space and time in your life regenerated your heart, made you alive to Christ and united you to Christ forever with you having no part in any of that functionally. Then who's boasting? Who's better than the next person? Look, it doesn't exist. And Paul will correct those attitudes coming up. But do you see how he begins? Before anything is wrong with you, this is how God sees you. 
And this is how Paul saw them first. And this can be how we see each other. It really is remarkable that Paul opens this letter this way. And there is something for us to learn from and apply in how we see and interact with the truths about us according to God's word. And how we interact with one another. I think Paul is already showing them what true Christ-centeredness is. When Christ functions at the center part of your life from which everything else expands. When, when Christ, to change the image, becomes the lens by which you see everything. When that happens and we see ourselves and we see others through Jesus. We see others and ourselves through the grace of God. We see ourselves and others through the gospel which is a great place to begin. Worship team, you can come and join me because as we think about applying this to our lives, encouraged by God's word this morning, let's just do this. What if we all take on a very practical assignment this week, today, and start with the people that are closest to you And fill in the blank. Say to someone who's closest to you, I want to encourage you because I see Jesus in you. And then fill in the blank in this way. Find someone who's close to you or those that are closest to you. Maybe it's your husband or wife. Maybe it's your close friends. Maybe you do this around the table at lunch today. Maybe it's with your children. Parents, when's the last time you sat your your kids down, your teenagers down? And if, if you see the grace of God in their lives, when's the last time you said, hey, I want you to come sit down. I want to talk to you. And they're not scared. right? Or, or roll their eyes at what, what version of lecture is coming next. When's the last time you said, all I want to say is I see Jesus in you. The way that you're fighting against sin as a teenager in this culture, the way that you get up and and read your Bible, the way that you go to church and worship Jesus genuinely and are affected in your heart by the, the words of the songs that we sing, the way that you listen to your youth leaders, the way that you obey your mother and I. Apart from Christ, these things don't exist in you. You think your teens need to be encouraged in these ways sometimes? Absolutely, we all do. So let's take up this holy assignment in response to God's word, not only to believe who we are because of the grace of God that has come to us, past, present, and future, but also to be really good at communicating. Can we, could we be a church that's really good at finding the small spark? and blowing on that. I pray that that would be the case. And Lord, we would need you to affect this in our lives because we are naturally and by the flesh critical and aware of the negative and aware of what's wrong and really good at correcting and adjusting, which again is all necessary. We're gonna see that in this letter. But may we first be a people of grace that sees you at work. Lord, if there's anybody here who is not a Christian, but I pray that they would respond to your voice even today, calling them so that all that we've said and seen would be true about them today. 
all that we're about to sing about. In Jesus' name.